podcast is out. The age of independence is here, where the next generation of high-performing agencies transform the agency landscape. I'm a mom, a businesswoman, and mega startup coach. This podcast is all about you, the agency owner, stepping into the new wave of opportunity, knocking out the competition in the modern market. This is the Age of Independence Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Agar. Welcome to the show. Hi, agents, and welcome back to the Age of Independence. I just want to wish you all a happy new year. New beginnings are always so exciting. And, you know, whatever resolutions or goals you've set for yourself, I just wish you so much success. And, know that you can accomplish so much using this new chapter as a like a launch pad to dive deeper into the things that are most important to you. The Age of Independence podcast is now a year old. And after my first 40 episodes, I decided to take a bit of a break from the podcast last quarter and spent that time working on future episodes, catching up on some education and training projects and preparing for season two, which is launching right now. In season two, you will find that the topics we focus on most closely will mirror the projects that I'm working on on a daily basis with the education team at Quantum and working with our sales teams and our customer service teams and our agents. And This season, we'll release one episode per month, and you can look forward to hearing topics that have to do with sales success, creating processes in your agency, talent development, something I'm so passionate about, and training and education. And my goal is that each episode is a refresher for you, for your week that helps you focus on something that's important to you and ultimately helps you maximize your impact in your agencies. So today, to kick off season two, we have a really special guest. And I know that many of you are familiar with Brian Ahern already. He's very influential in our industry. If you are new to Brian's content, I'm so excited for what you're about to learn today. Brian Ahern is the Chief Influence Officer at Influence People. He's an author, an international trainer, a TEDx presenter, and consultant, and he specializes in applying the science of influence in everyday business situations. So wow, think how much impact that can have. Brian spent more than 30 years in the insurance industry and is one of only a dozen individuals in the world who holds the Cialdini Method Certified Trainer Designation. Brian's first book is called Influence People, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to Persuade that are Lasting and Ethical. And that book was named one of the top 100 influence books of all time by Book Authority. His second book, Persuasive Selling for Relationship-Driven Insurance Agents, was an Amazon new release bestseller, and he recently released his third book, The Influencer, Secrets to Success and Happiness, which debuted last day, last December. These are great tools. If you haven't had a chance to order them yet, grab them on Amazon. Really great tools. And be sure to check out his LinkedIn learning courses on persuasive selling and coaching. So much great content for you and for your teams that have been viewed by nearly 400,000 people around the world. Next up, let's hear what he has to say about persuasive selling in the insurance field. And let's find out how we can have a deeper impact in our agencies. Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. How are you? I am doing fantastic, Caitlin. Thank you for having me on. Oh, absolutely. It's my pleasure. I'm so honored to have you as a guest. I know that you're so well known in insurance circles, Brian, in the industry. You've done so much to help agents be the best that they can. And we just can't wait to learn more about your expertise today. So thanks for coming on. Um, How's your new year going? The new year is off to a great start. And as you and I chatted a little bit, our daughter, our only child is getting married in June. So this is going to be a big, big year for us. So it's a milestone year. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) That's amazing. I hope that there's just 
so many fun festivities leading up to the wedding and cool things afterwards. That's just really, really exciting for your family. And um, I imagine it'll be busy. It'll probably feel busy until June then. <laughs> it'll be busy for my wife. I've kind of taken the back seat. I'm paying for everything, but they're doing everything. So you get to watch it unfold. Yeah. Now here, here, I'll, I'll tell you something that's, that's cool, but funny or funny, but cool, whichever way you want to look at it. So um, our daughter's fiance, his name is Tyler Ahern, spelled the same way as my last name. No way. So, <laughs> I, you know, when they started dating and they did the 23andMe and all that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. I said, Abigail, I'm secretly pulling for this to work because now my name will go on. And uh, my next it big will. step, can I persuade <laughs> her to name her first boy, Brian? She swears that it won't happen, but we got time. We got I time. wouldn't be surprised. You have time, but that, that would be golden. Oh, my goodness. Well, do you and your wife have a vacation planned for yourselves after the wedding is the question. <laughs> Not after the wedding, but we've got things coming up. We're going to be in, in Arizona for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to leave on Friday, and then we're going to spend a couple weeks in Florida in March. Uh, my wife's big into golf, and so she'll be golfing, and I'll be seeing friends and doing things. So we've got some stuff pre-planned. I think afterwards, we're just going to breathe a sigh of relief and then we'll decide what to do. That's amazing. Well, tell me um, how you feel about New Year's resolutions. Did you set any? I didn't set any. I, I'm a big goal setter mm -hmm. and I always have goals and I'm very methodical about how I work through those. But I set goals as I see something that I want to go after. Um, I, I think it's great that people can set goals on New Year's day. And, and there's all kinds of research about when to set goals and, and things like that. And I even published a piece recently about a way that people can stand a better chance to achieve those goals using social psychology. Using social psychology. So does announcing and sharing your goal help? Is that one of those things that it is socially increase your chances of following through? Yep. What I talk about is I, I tell them pave the way to success. Make your goals public, take some active steps. Whatever your goal is, it has to be voluntary. It has to be yours. It can't be thrust upon you. Um, and then the more energy that you exert, the more effort that you put forth, the more likely you are. And I talk about reasons for each of those within that framework, but that's an easy thing to remember, pave, public, active, voluntary, and effort. And if people will take those steps, they'll have a much better chance of achieving their goals. I love the acronym. Well, I'll take the, the first step and go public with one of my goals, and maybe that'll increase the chances that I can follow through. But I really want to um, read a chapter in a book to my kids every day this year. And um, they're ages six and seven. And um, we read a lot in our house. And it's been some of our most memorable moments. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be more consistent with that and make sure that, that I'm reading to them every single day. And that that can be like a consistent part of their day that they look forward to. You know, one thing I will tell you that will help, there's a lot of research, there's some great books on, on habit formation, tiny habits, the power of habits, uh, atomic habits. But one of the things that really helps is a cue of some sort. And I remember Charles Duhigg, when he wrote The Power of Habits, he said, if he got up in the morning and he had the goal of running, he wouldn't run nearly as much as if he would when he saw his shoes by the door. And that was the cue that he needed. And so for you, the cue might be whatever that book is, leaving it in a space where everybody sees it. So you either pick it up or the kids go, mom, you didn't read to me yet. That's such a great idea. Maybe I could keep a, a, a stack at the kitchen table. So um, we're looking forward to that. And my kids aren't old enough to read your books yet, Brian, but um, I have been so intrigued by your work on influencing and persuasive sales and um, your LinkedIn courses are just full of actionable content that really break everything down step by step. So can you tell us a little bit about the books that you've written? I see them on the screen behind you right now. Can you um, give us the, the highlights about each one of these three books that you've released? So my first book that I came out with in August of 2019 is Influence People. And the subtitle, the word people is an acronym, Powerful Everyday Opportunities to persuade that are lasting and ethical. And it introduces readers to the psychology of persuasion. It takes a look at uh, business case studies 
gives real business examples, a lot of things I saw when I was working for an insurance carrier. And it also touches on things like social media. So a very high level overview. It also looks at some decision-making processes that our minds go through. The second book uh, is Persuasive Selling for Relationship-Driven Insurance Agents. And that came out in January last year. And the focus of that book is, again, it introduces the psychology, but then it very specifically starts looking at how do you apply it throughout the sales cycle how do you apply it to different buying styles? It introduces the concept of persuasion, and then also talks about a listening model that I call STARS, that if anybody follows it, will help them be much more effective when it comes to their listening skills. And, uh, and that book serves as the basis of a one-day workshop that I do with insurance company sales reps and insurance agents. And the third book that I came out with, which just came out in December. Congratulations. Is called, thank you. It's called The Influencer. Secrets to Success and Happiness. And I wrote that book because I know there are some people who will never pick up a heavy like business slash psychology book or a sales book, but a lot of people will read business parables. And so this book teaches all of the influence that I talk about, but through a story format as it follows the life of a young man named John Andrews, you know, from his birth and you, he go to college with him. And then as he gets a job as a medical supply sales rep, you know, he meets somebody. And so you see through the entirety of his career, how he's learning about influence, putting it into practice and reaping the rewards of that. And the cool thing, Caitlin, about the book is almost every character is based on somebody that I know in real life that I actually learned wow. things from. So it was an honor to be able to share with a wider audience what was so impactful for me and the things that they taught me. That is so neat. And I love how each of the books builds upon um, these concepts in different ways. Everything from the very practical steps that you get in persuasive selling to that storytelling narrative that we will find in your newest book. So I'm looking forward to checking that one out. And Brian, you've been active in the sales industry for quite some time. So when did you realize that your passion was persuasion and influence and helping people to grow in those areas? Well, I came across the work of Dr. Robert Cialdini back in the early 2000s. I believe it was uh, early 2003 or maybe late 2002. And I was involved in sales training. I was working with company sales reps at the insurance company that I was working at. And somebody in my department came by and, and gave a video of Robert Cialdini presenting at Stanford. And she gave it to my boss and I. My boss was the vice president of sales. And she said, I think you guys will really like this. So we watched the video, and for me, the light bulb came on immediately. I mean, I, I thought the psychology he's talking about is the underpinning of all selling. It explains why certain approaches work and why certain approaches don't. The second thing that, that was really attractive to me was everything he talked about was research-based. This wasn't somebody's good advice or best opinion or anything like that. It was backed by empirical data. And the third thing, Caitlin, that really appealed to me was his stance on ethics. He was very clear about non-manipulative ways to move people to action. And so it just really, it resonated so much that I started utilizing the video around the company. I'd show it, we would talk about the concepts. And what was really cool was at some point I had signed up for Stanford's marketing. And one day, one of their flyers comes across my desk and there's Robert Cialdini's picture. And in bold letters, it says bestseller. And right underneath it in bold letters, it said, call it influence, persuasion, or even manipulation. And I thought, Red I can't flag. Believe, <laughs> yeah, I can't believe they use that word. What copywriter would think that advertising manipulation would, would be good for selling? So I emailed Stanford and I basically said, I don't know anybody who wants to be manipulated. And I don't know anybody who's looking to become a good manipulator. He's very clear about non-manipulative ways to sell or to move people to action. That word is not helping your sales, but I guarantee it's hurting. And I never heard from Stanford, but sometime later, my phone rang and it was someone from Robert Cialdini's office calling to thank me on his behalf. And they said, your email to Stanford caused them to change the marketing of all of our materials. And that was the beginning of my relationship with him and the rest is history. That is so neat. And you mentioned how important um, ethical practices were to Robert Cialdini and how important it is to be non-manipulative in mm -hmm. our approach. So what would you say is the difference between influencing and manipulating? And what do we need to understand about 
how those so, two are not aligned. Okay. So when I talk about influence, and I, I use the word persuasion pretty interchangeably, I like Aristotle's definition. Aristotle said that persuasion was the art of getting someone to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do if you didn't ask. Okay. So that's how we move people. It's, it's how we interact with them, our requests and a whole host of things that we do to try to maybe change how they think or feel, but really ultimately to change how they're acting. When it comes to doing that ethically, there are three things that are absolute musts. The first thing is truthfulness. I always tell the truth and I never hide the truth because if there's something that I know would materially impact your decision and I don't tell you, if you find out later and come back to me and ask, it will not be defensible to say, well, Caitlin, you didn't ask, right? right. You're not going to look at me as an honest broker at that point. So we always tell the truth and we don't hide the truth. The second thing that we do is we only use the psychology that's natural to the situation. So I don't tout that something's a bestseller if it's not. I don't uh, invoke a false sense of scarcity, trying to get you to take some action because you think something's going away when there's plenty to be had. So we only use psychology that's natural to the situation. And the third thing is whatever we're asking can't just be good for us. It has to be good for the other person too. And I like to put it this way, good for you, good for me, then we're good to go. And if we can hit on all three of those, I think we can look ourselves in the mirror and feel good about who we are and how we're interacting with other people. There's so much good to be done in the insurance industry. So I love that focus on truthfulness, moving forward with what's natural to the situation and making sure it's beneficial to the person that you're working with. And I, that builds so much trust and credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, I know one of the things you talk about is speaking from a place of authority. And when you mm-hmm. combine that with trust and credibility and rapport, it goes a really long way to starting off a great relationship on the right foot. So absolutely. Brian, at Quantum, one of our core values as a team is called We Are Influencers. And the idea behind it is that you're always influencing the person next to you or the room or the people around you, whether you intended to or not. And just taking that role seriously and um, the good that we believe we can do in the insurance industry. What would you want our team to understand about being influencers? that there are scientifically proven ways to go about it to be more effective. So to put it in terms that almost everybody can get, we all probably know a few things that we could do to eat better and maybe be more diligent about exercising. And and so people can step into that world and try and get healthy. Or you can also turn to maybe a fitness trainer or somebody who's a health expert and really start to understand what does research tell us about a good diet? What does research tell us about how to optimally get our body in shape to do whatever it is that we want to do? Because, you know, lifting weights is different than running. So what is that end goal? But we could turn to those experts and we could get advice that if we put into practice, it will help accelerate our goal of getting in shape. And so I would say that for anybody who wants to get better at influence, it would start with learn what the research has to say. And if you learn what it says, and then you begin to diligently put it into practice and look at what works and what's not and continue to adjust, no matter where you are on the spectrum of being able to influence others, you will get better. And then it gets easier and easier the more that you do it. So being intentional and taking time to study it and understand what it means. Absolutely. So that we're not winging it. Uh, what have you seen organizations get wrong when it comes to selling and their sales processes? Other than everything? <laughs> there, yeah. there, there's, a, there's a lot. Uh, you know, one of the big things I think when it comes to selling is there's a principle called consistency, which says we feel an internal psychological pressure and an external social pressure to be consistent in what we say and what we do. And that's triggered quite often by gaining a commitment from the other person. But the mistake that so many people make is they tell people what to do. So an insurance agent may tell their customer, I need you to get me the loss runs. I need you to get me prior year information, whatever it is, but they're Mm -hmm. telling them. But what they should be saying is, Caitlin, would you be able to get me your loss runs for the past three years by this Friday? Because without them, I can't go any further on on the quote that you've asked for. 
And once you come back and say, yes, the likelihood that you'll actually do that goes up dramatically. Because if you're like most people, you don't want to feel bad about yourself and having promised something to me, but then not delivering. Now, this isn't a magic wand. I'm not saying that every person, every time, but what the studies show is significantly more people will do what you need them to do by asking instead of telling. So that's one small example. And But you think about how many times you want people to do things and we just tell them, we need to retrain ourselves to take a breath and just ask. So asking, not just telling, because then they're making a verbal commitment that, they're, that they have a um, internal gauge that's motivating them to want to keep their word and follow through. Absolutely. And another way of, of utilizing asking is when you provide information to somebody. So if somebody had reached out to you and said, Caitlin, I've got this question about my insurance and whatever that may be, you do your research, you get back to that person. I think when you put a question at the end, is that everything that you were looking for? Or does that answer your question? Or does this help you? Something that gives confirmation that you've done what is needed, most of the time they're gonna come back and say yes, but they're probably gonna go a lot more like, oh my gosh, Caitlin, that was so much more than I expected. Thank you so much. And as they're writing all of that, you have just risen in their esteem. And that's another reason that they want to keep coming back and doing business with you. But if you think about it, if you don't ask that question, they might just get what they need and shoot off a quick thank you. And you've missed this opportunity to influence how they think and feel about you and your organization. I noticed you also used the because rule <laughs> with the person asking for the, the loss runs. So that makes it so powerful. And it just, what does that do to influence whether you're getting a yes 30% of the time or 70% of the time? So there was a study that was done by a lady named Ellen Langer, who was a professor at Harvard, and she set up this experiment. Now, go back in the day when people had to go to like a photocopy shop to, to get their copies made, and they would wait until the line got rather long, and all throughout the day, they would have somebody walk up to the individual at the front of the line. And in the first set of research, they would say, I, excuse me, I have five copies to make. May I go ahead of you? So just a straight ask. And 60% of the time, people said, sure. At a different time, they would walk up and they would say, excuse me, I have five copies to make. May I go ahead of you because I'm in a rush? Now, hearing that they're in a rush, 94%, almost everybody, wow. sure, go ahead. Now, thinking it's because they were in a rush, they repeat the experiment one more time. And the person would go up and say, excuse me, I have five copies to make. May I go ahead of you because I need to make these copies? And now when you think about Whoa. it, that's a bogus <laughs> reason, right? Yeah. You're all in line to make copies. And 93% of the people said, sure, go ahead. The wow. social psychologists theorized that it's conditioning from the time that we are little. And, and so you've mentioned you have two little kids. If yeah. you say to your kids, clean your room, take out the trash, do your homework. If they ever go, why, mom? What do you probably say? Because I said so. Bingo. And that's because <laughs> your, parents, your parents did that. My parents did that. And, and so the thought is we're so conditioned by that word and more than 95% of our decision-making happens at the subconscious level that when we tag something with because and we give a reason, and I'm, I'm always give a legitimate reason, but it will begin to increase the odds that the person will do what you need them to do. It's so um, doable. So I, I think that's something that I could I could do is committing to using that that some reason. And in your example, it didn't have to be, you know, uh, can I print my copies ahead of yours because someone's dying of cancer? It was just because it would really be a big help. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had something this weekend. So our daughter um, moved back in with us and COVID and everything. And, and anyway, she's got a couple of cats. My wife tends to do most of the work on the cat litter, which she doesn't particularly like. So she was out of town and, and I was with Abigail and I said, hey, Abigail, would you mind emptying the cat litter before mom gets home? Because I know that she's not going to want to come home right away and deal with that. So kind of a long sentence, but it still was an ask with because. And, and she said, sure, there was no resistance. She went up and, and did it. I didn't have to worry about I didn't hear you. Uh, I'll do it later. Any of that stuff. 
Hey, loyal listeners, when you hear me say CAS certified, that means that we use them in our agency. Are you a local insurance agent looking to take your business to the next level? Write more business and see your agency succeed with NBS, aka Nationwide Brokerage Solutions. But like in today's world, we use these initials like it's cool because it is. It's hip. At Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, they offer the challenges local agents face in the constantly changing market. That's why they offer a wide array of personal and commercial markets and policy options to help you meet the needs of your customers, no matter how unique they may be. With a team of experienced and dedicated professionals that provide you with the support and the guidance you need to see your agency succeed. Nationwide Brokered Solutions is here to support you every step of the way. Don't you survive in the competitive insurance industry? Thrive with Nationwide Brokerage Solutions today. Get started today and learn more at mbsbrokerage.com. That's where you learn more, mbsbrokerage.com. Cast certified. Well, and... To your point, Brian, the science says that these techniques make a difference. Absolutely. So when it comes to those of us who work with teams of salespeople or the insurance agent who's working on coaching their insurance producers to grow and stretch themselves, how do you how do you persuade someone to be persuasive? You have that new employee on the team. Maybe it's their first sales role and they're a little uncomfortable getting out of their comfort zone. How can a sales coach persuade that new person on the, on the, that person who's new to the insurance industry to embrace being persuasive? So I love the question because so often people will learn something like this, maybe a manager and they leap right in and they say, here's what we need to do. We need to implement all these things, forgetting that they have to persuade their salespeople to change their behaviors and adopt these because everybody does what they do for their own reasons. And they they probably generally think that their reasons are good. Now, they might agree that occasionally it's not the best approach, but given their constraints, it's the right approach. So you need to start with your team and influencing them. When it comes to coaching, you know, you can look at coaching at, at a high level as building relationship, helping people to get beyond some uncertainty, and then moving them to action. And so I think in the coaching process, the stronger the relationship that you build early on, you know, people know, like, and trust you. And then you can move into establishing a little bit of your authority that you've got years of experience, you've been doing some research, here are some, some things that people can do. So you give them a very solid reason to begin changing. And then you use a principle like consistency to very clearly ask, okay, Caitlin, so you know, we've, we've talked about this. It seems like it resonates with you. Tell me how you're going to put this into your next sales call, kind of gaining that commitment back. And then I can go back and we can discuss your sales call and we can keep kind of on that path where we are presenting information. We're agreeing that it sounds like it's a good approach, but I'm gaining a commitment from you. Are sales scripts a good tool to use in a, in a coaching scenario? They can be a good starting point. I always like to, I I really want people to lay hold of the principles behind why the script works, because then people who are really good will take that and be able to leverage it in new ways that will accelerate their their growth. Um, What we don't want, I think, is people to sound automatic where, and you've probably had this happen, you call and you can just tell they're reading a script. And, and they haven't internalized for themselves why they are being asked to do that. Um, I think a good example is in sales, the feel, felt, found approach, right? Um, I understand how you feel, Caitlin, because others have felt the same way. However, what they found is, okay? The underlying psychology of that is, you know, empathy. I'm understanding how you feel. Why? Because others, that's called social proof, have felt the same way. And then I use this word, however, or but, which is a transitional word that helps people forget what came first and focus on what comes next. When people really begin to lay hold of that, they don't have to say, I understand how you feel because others have felt, they can start in their own verbiage. I can say, Caitlin, I get it. I I completely get where you're coming from because dealt with lots of other people during my time in the industry. However, what they found, and 
And, and it starts to sound different, but it's still the same psychology, which is going to be just as effective at moving people to take that action. And once they see those results, it builds that confidence that they need to be effective in yes. those situations. Yeah. And I think that when you when you begin to understand the why behind things, it opens you up because if you find yourself in a situation where your one technique that you've learned isn't working, you could feel dead in the water, like completely lost. But if you understand how people think and behave, you can step back, you know, take a breath, look for your other opportunities and maybe move in a different direction because you're confident that you can tap into the right psychology. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like sales coaches or insurance agents that are motivating their office of producers really need to be spending time on the why behind the methods and the principles that they're working on their team with to get that buy-in and that verbal commitment that they'll try it out. And that's half the battle in working to persuade them to become more persuasive. They may feel um, hesitant, like, I don't, I don't want to be pushy or, um, oh, that doesn't sound like me. And so we're asked, it's a big ask. We're asking them to change a thought pattern so that we can get a, a different behavior. And um, that can take a little bit of time. Um, I think the, when, when I talk about influence, I love it when a, when a culture, like you, you talk about your influencers, when it, when a culture understands the kind of at the foundation of moving people to action is their ability to influence others. And when you recognize that, then you need to make sure that everybody in the organization understands the vocabulary. So it doesn't do nearly as much good if you, Caitlin, go off to a seminar and you learn all this stuff and you come back and you're enthusiastic and you're putting it into place, but nobody else really gets why you want them to change those behaviors. Right. But imagine imagine if everybody understood the seven principles of persuasion and persuasion and a few other things, maybe not at the depth that you do, but they understand it so that when you say, hey, we're going to change our approach to current clients and we're going to do this because it incorporates reciprocity. And everybody goes, I remember that. And I remember hearing a couple of those studies that and, and they can more fully get on board because they understand the why behind the change. So you mentioned these key principles to persuasion. And one of the ones that stood out to me was comparing and contrasting, Brian, because it struck me as one that could be so effective in the insurance conversation. So do you have any examples or advice you could give us about how to make sure we're not neglecting this tool of comparing and contrasting when we're working with a client on selecting a different insurance product? Okay. So when we talk about the principles, there are seven principles of persuasion and then contrast stands on its own. So we we don't really call it one of the principles because unlike the principles, contrast is always available. You may not have an opportunity to engage reciprocity, scarcity or something else, but human beings naturally make comparisons, right? If somebody says, oh, he's tall. Well, that's a relative term, right? we all know what somebody's trying to convey, but what that person says is tall might be short compared to somebody, you know, if someone says, wow, that car was expensive. You might think it's not nearly as much as I paid for my car, right? To you, it's not. So they're comparative terms, but humans are always doing that. And I think it's critical when salespeople that they are the ones who begin to make the comparison. Otherwise you're leaving it up to what that other person thinks is expensive, tall or whatever. And so an example could be if you're looking at potentially moving a client to a new carrier because maybe their premium rose more than is acceptable for them. So you put that out to bid. A mistake that a lot of agents would make is throwing out some of the high numbers because, oh, they'll never go for that. And it's true. They won't go for that. But those higher numbers make whatever you ultimately present look much more palatable by comparison. So if a carrier comes in at 50 or 55,000 and another one's at like 48,000, and then you've got one that's 39, make sure you mention those because 39 then looks much better by comparison. And you are making the comparison for them, not leaving it up to them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it sounds like there's always an opportunity to contrast. And so as the salesperson, you want to take the lead in what kind of um, features you want to highlight or differences that you want to bring under the spotlight so that you're not leaving it up to interpretation. 
Sure. If, if you were going to move somebody from on a personal auto account from a half million to a million dollar single limit underlier, most people might think that would be twice as expensive. Don't lose that opportunity. So again, I could say, you know, Caitlin, it's our recommendation that we move from half a million dollars to a million dollars on your liability for your auto. Now, don't worry, it's not going to be twice as expensive. It's only going to be $8 a month. You know, and then you say, you know, and for $8 a month to get $500,000 more coverage should something bad happen is a great deal. And people all of a sudden start going, it is. But if you don't do that, then most people just look at like, wow, my premium went up. Do I really want to spend that extra money? I'm already spending money over here. You need to be able to, in a sense, control that comparison point. And I don't want anybody to misinterpret this. This is, this is always in the best interest of the client. You know, I know, and I'm sure your listeners know that the recommendations they're putting forth, should something bad happen, somebody's going to say, thank God you were my agent because I know I'm covered. And speaking to them the way you would want um, someone to explain insurance to a family member. And if your family member didn't have enough liability coverage, you would want them to be protected from lawsuits. And so you would want the person consulting with them to say, hey, you know, it's not going to cost twice as much (laughs) to increase to a million. Um, It's only $8 a month. And that's a good deal because it's truly in their best interest. And you would hope that the person consulting with your family member would take the time to help them understand. Because if we just rush through it and we say, hey, by the way, do you want the million dollars of liability instead? It's going to be $66 a year. The default answer is going to be like, no, I'm good. And we don't want that for our family. So we don't want that for our clients. Right. Nobody thinks it's going to happen to them, you know, but but we see on the news that it happens to people all the time. You know, just knock on wood, you or I or others have been very fortunate. But if something tragic were to happen like that, any person would look at it and say, I am so thankful that I spent that extra bit of money because of what it's going to do for me now in this situation to help me get back on my feet. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about your content, Brian, is that it applies, these are principles that apply in different sales situations. Um, One nuance that I'd like to dive into is um, the difference between selling a personal lines insurance product and a commercial lines insurance product, and just wondering if there's any differences that come to your mind about those. Um, At Quantum, we have several um, insurance consultants who are growing out of personal lines and beginning to sell commercial lines insurance for the first time. And so now they're speaking to business owners and people who own companies and people who have employees. Um, Are there any principles that stand out as particularly important in commercial sales or anything that you found we should handle differently than when we're selling car or home insurance, for example? I think think the key things are understanding the motivation of the buyer. I think buying for your Home and auto is very different. It's very, you know, uh, not no pun intended, very personal because you <laughs> personally own own these things versus dealing with somebody at a business who may not be that business owner, but might be in charge of procurement or in charge of, of the insurance. So there's a different motivation there and really understanding what that motivation is and ultimately what they're looking for. You know, frankly, some business owners are going to just look to, they, they look at insurance as an expense. Uh, rather than an investment, because it's just money out the door that they hope that they'll never use. And and really trying to understand that and, and maybe then changing that perception becomes really, really critical. I think um, scarcity is a principle. The principle of scarcity says we value things more when we think that they're rare or going away. Being able to construct scenarios that somebody might not ever envision that could potentially happen to a business is really key for getting them to see what is at stake. For example, there's probably way too many business owners who do not carry business interruption. And if they do, they probably don't have it constructed the right way. So if something happened, they may get some expenses covered, but lose their employees who have to go elsewhere while the business is shut down. So to be able to talk about and make some comparison points so people really get it, it's a much more complicated product on, on the commercial side. I will tell you, Caitlin, as a personal lines underwriter, I started my career at Travelers in that area, and then I moved over to commercial. It was overwhelming in that back in the day, it was like 
you had non-standard, standard, and preferred. And then I went over to the commercial side and somebody said, well, what kind of credits did you put on that account? What do you mean? Well, you know, you could discount it up to 25% if you think it's a good risk. How do I know that? I mean, and then the, the valuations were so much larger, it was kind of intimidating. So those are, I think those are things too, that someone moving from personal to commercial has to reset their own, you know, what is, what is uh, values that won't make them hesitant, um, premiums and, and things like that. It's a new orientation, kind of like going maybe from high school football to college football or from college into the NFL. It's all football, but it's kind of a different game and it's played at a different speed. It is played at a different speed. So <laughs> um, it's a fun one though. So when we're when we're speaking with other business owners, we have to try to customize our approach because we want them to feel like they're being treated as an individual. And one of the things that you talk about is how important it is to pick up on what personality type they have. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're working with a commercial product and we what are some clues that the business person we're talking to as a driver? Okay. So when I talk about personality styles, and there's so many approaches to personality styles, and so I'll make two overriding comments. First, uh, it's not that it's unimportant to understand your personality, but it's always more important to understand the person that you're interacting with. And the second is because there are so many ways to look at personalities, um, you know, Myers-Briggs, you're not going to walk into a situation and go, oh, you're an MJEK or, you know, anything like that. <laughs> so we have to have something that we can use to quickly assess where we think somebody is. And I use something that's comparable to DISC, but I call it the deal model, a driver, expressive, amiable, and logical. And, and a driver is somebody who is much more task focused than relationship focused. And they really like to be in control of situations or others when they're around them. Um, So an individual like that, you will approach differently than the expressive who likes to be in control too, but is much more relational. And and I think uh, examples of that could be uh, Steve Jobs would have been a a driver. I mean, he was just a controlling type individual. It was about getting stuff done, you know, Katie bar the door, and he's just going to go forward with what his vision is. Contrast him to Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey is an expressive, in complete control of her media empire, but she wants to know you, Caitlin, and she wants to hear your story. And if she likes you, she's going to help you. So you approach Steve Jobs very differently than you approach her. An example of an amiable who is a relationship-oriented person who is much more focused on self-control and not controlling others, you know, the, the typical one that comes up is like a Mother Teresa, right? Never sought fame. Fame found her but she was not about controlling situations and she was all about people. And then the final is a logical individual and that would be like an Albert Einstein. Uh, Very task focused, uh, but not out to control others, much more internal locus of control. And so what I look at in the book is there are different principles of persuasion that are more effective at dealing with each of these personalities. And when you assess that, if I walk in and I know I'm dealing with a driver, I'm not going to buddy up to them. I'm not going to try to befriend them. I'm going to be quick and to the point to talk about like what they might lose by not going with with what I talk about. Um, An example, and I don't say this to be um, controversial at all, but Donald Trump prior to being president was the one that everybody said was the driver. You wouldn't go into him and say, I got a million dollar deal. But if you went in and said, hey, I think we're losing a million dollars a year. It's just reframing that you'd catch his attention. And, and people in that position too, they also respond to the principle of consistency, what they've said and done in the past. Uh, so those are some principles that you're very uh, effectively going to use, but you may not have the same approach with uh, somebody like an Albert Einstein. It's so wise. And I, I found that when someone starts out selling, they tend to, their launching pad tends to be their personality type. So if you're that logical person, you might feel like you have to line out every dollar amount line by line and give your client several reasons. And um, they might be an expressive that's looking for a a totally different experience. And um, if you're that amiable person that it's 
placing this super high value on relationships, you might go into this sales call feeling a, a deep need to build rapport and talk about the person's family experiences in their life because you feel like if you don't do that, that right. you're being um, pushy or all about the product or that you don't care about the person. So I think studying these personality types really frees you up to be curious about how the people around you think and um, just knowing that they might perceive those things totally differently than right. you do. And that that could give um, some of our um, salespeople in the audience a little more confident to be okay trying some of these methods that maybe it does feel out of your comfort zone, but to the person you're talking to, you're speaking their language. Absolutely. It's, you have to become a little bit of a chameleon. And I don't want anybody to think that that means that you're becoming fake or something you're not. That's not what I'm talking about. You can still be totally you, but you are understanding what psychology would be best to interact with that person. And so you're just talking about your products and services differently and, and spending your time differently with that person as opposed to somebody else. So you can be very consistent still with who you are. People do ask a lot like, well, is there one personality style that's best to be a salesperson? And I routinely tell them, no, if you understand what your strengths are. So for example, Caitlin, I'm a very analytical person. I fall on the logical side. What I have learned over time is how to leverage my strengths. As an example, I've got a great follow-up system. I worked hard to implement that. Now that it works, things do not fall through the cracks. I am able to respond back to people when I said, because I know every single client and potential client has at least one or more tasks set up. So I leverage that strength that allows me to get the opportunities. That's my strength. If you are an expressive, figure out what your strengths are and play to those and do what you can to minimize the weaknesses. And I think anybody can sell because that lets you be authentically you. That's really interesting that you think everyone can sell because of how much opportunity there is in the insurance industry right now. And um, I would, I, we find so much joy in our education team at Quantum, finding people who are new to the industry, plugging them in, and then helping them become successful. Um, just the other day, I had to like drop my car off at the dealership and I had an Uber driver pick me up and take me to the office. And this guy was totally, totally an amiable, like super friendly, super chill. And it turns out that he's in health insurance customer service. Mm -hmm. So we started talking about insurance. We started talking about um, career opportunities, our commercial sales position. And I connected him with our recruiting team. This person is a amiable, which means he doesn't see himself as like a natural salesperson, but he wants a better opportunity. He wants something with where he gets to decide his paycheck and he gets to have more control over that. And so what I love about these principles is that even if someone is new to sales or doesn't consider themselves persuasive, mm -hmm. they can study the science and follow where it leads and learn some of these best practices that can help them embrace a career that they're interested in and that they find compelling where they can help people. And sometimes people just need to be able to see the light. I, you know, it never really hit me before, but as you talked about that, I thought almost anybody who's driving for Uber wants some control over their life. I've talked to a lot of Uber drivers who say they do it for the flexibility. And then I've talked with a lot who do it because they say that if they do it well, they can earn a lot of money on their schedule. Well, that does align really good with, with a, a base level motivation for sales. And so if they can then go like, wow, I never really saw that. And we can teach them the basics of selling and, and then help them along the way with that motivation of wanting to control their schedules and their income, they could be wildly successful. They, they could. And that's what I love about the work you're doing in your field, Brian, and what motiv motivates myself and our education team at Quantum is to help people find those opportunities and that um, wild success that could be a part of their future. Um, can you leave us with any advice that you have for that person who is new to a sales career and they want to understand influence and persuasion and get it right? What advice do you have for us? 
I would say everything starts, you know, well, first of all, I'll go a step back and say, I think you would concur with this, that in, insurance is still a relationship business, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we can continue to make it that by how we interact with the public. So I would say that somebody starting in a sales role, focusing on the principle of liking, which says that it's easier for people to say yes to you if they know you and they like you, but don't spend your time trying to get people to like you. You know, it's not about me, Caitlin, getting you to like me. It's about me doing everything I can to get to know and like you. And that when you see that, you start naturally opening up. Because when you say to yourself, like, wow, Brian seems like he really likes me and cares for me, then you receive whatever I'm putting on the table differently. But also my motivation for what I put on the table for your insurance needs is beginning to change because I do like you and I care about you. So I'm working harder on your behalf. And we create this virtuous cycle that all but removes any uh, instance of potential manipulation because I would never manipulate my friends and I know you wouldn't. So I would say, start with this principle of liking. It's the foundation for the rest of the house. And I had never heard it explained in that way before. I love that perspective on um, spend time liking your client and getting to know them. Yep. And that will so influence how they feel about whether you care. And we all uh, love to spend time with people that care about our interests genuinely and want Mm -hmm. what's in our best interest. And I think the world would be a better place if every time we had to deal with a salesperson in a different industry, if we felt that level of care and um, how that would just increase that that interaction and make it something really beneficial mm-hmm. for, for both parties. So um, thanks for sharing, Brian. And you've touched on so much, but I know that you have so um, so many other skills and principles in your books and in your content that would benefit us. Um, Your LinkedIn learning courses have been viewed by more than 400,000 people Mm -hmm. across the world, which is just an insane number. So for our audience listening, where can they download your courses and find your content? So uh, first I would say connect with me on LinkedIn, because as you know, Caitlin, I post a lot of information. So you will, you will, if you're following me or connected with me, you're going to see a lot of information around the things that we've talked about today. The next area I would say is if you go out to my website, which is influencepeople.biz, from there, there are links to the books, there are intros to the LinkedIn learning courses, videos. Uh, I've been blogging weekly for, I think, 14 years now. So just a tremendous amount of free content, as well as access to some of the paid content too. So those would be the two places. Love it. Well, I know that many of our agents already know who you are. I've listened to your interviews on other podcasts, Um, but thank you for bringing this extra value today. And agents, um, make sure that you check out Brian's books and courses if you haven't already, because the the ones that I dove into were so eye-opening and definitely a tool that we want to keep using in the future. So Brian, thank you so much for joining us. We wish you and your family a super happy new year. You have so many exciting things on the horizon <laughs> and we need to see how those unfold. Agents, um, remember straight from Brian, we're working on persuasiveness, but always being truthful, staying true to what's natural to the situation and finding what's beneficial and good for you and for the other the other person that you're working with. And I know that this will just help us have that deep level of impact in our communities that we're also focused on bringing into the new year. Thanks, everyone.